Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny's joined by Leonard Lee Bouchel, a former addict and drug dealer who is now a leader in the recovery field and author of the new book, Hi, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict. So tune in and hear not only his whale of a tale, but just how alive he feels now that he's no longer high. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access the show archives. Those are found at 1150kknw.com. 1150kknw.com, as well as iTunes and Podcast One. Um, You can find out more about me through my website, which is goldenoversoul.com. That is goldenoversoul.com. Vinny, how are you doing? Doing very well, doing very well. I'm trying to stay warm, uh, so we got plenty of blankets to go around, I think. Yeah, last little (laughs) cold snap, probably. I know, please go away. (laughs) I'm tired. (laughs) I am tired of it this year. I don't know why, probably because the last two years of uh, some other things going on, so. Oh. Well, you know, with the. COVID. Oh gosh, I was like, I thought you were talking about in your own personal life, and I'm like, well, it does, it does affect us, really. Anyway, (laughs) I know. Where am I? I'm like, you referenced the last two years, and I'm like, well, because you really can't get out as much, and you know, your things are kind of like pulling back. Vinny, I get it. I was just kind of slow on the uptake on that very obvious (laughs) (laughs) comment. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, okay. Well, at least we've got some beautiful sunshine with the view of the mountains. Perfect for today. Yeah. Okay. Well. I will go ahead and bring on our amazing guest today, and I'm really excited. Um, I think if you, um, uh, on our little Sunny in Seattle Facebook page, that's where I post our upcoming guests, and I made the comment in my little post about today's show that I don't think in the seven years of doing the show, I have had the privilege of interviewing quite such a character as Leonard Lee Bouchel, who is our guest today. Um he has a new book out called High, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict. Um, and I'll just read his bio here, and then we'll welcome him on the show. Um, Leonard Lee Bouchel is a California-certified substance abuse counselor with years of experience working with people struggling with addiction. He attended Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. Mr. Bouchel is the founder of Writers in Treatment, whose primary purpose is to promote treatment as the best first step solution for addiction, alcoholism, and other self-destructive behaviors. Leonard is director of the Real Recovery Film Festival and Symposium, which he founded in 2008. He's also the editor and publisher of the weekly Addiction Recovery e-Bulletin. He also produces the annual Experience, Strength, and Hope Awards in Los Angeles, and he just celebrated 27 years clean and sober. Uh, if you want to find out more about Leonard Lee Bouchel, um, good website to go to for that. He's got several, but I'm just going to mention here because I know sometimes it can be overwhelming trying to take notes while <laughs> we're live on air, you're driving, etc. So uh, the website to go to is realrecoveryfilmfestival.org. That's realrecoveryfilmfestival.org. And real is spelled R-E-E-L, as in, you know, a real real film. (laughs) 
Well played. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's the only other one. I know. Well, or I a rod thought, and reel. Or it, could be, or it could be like real as in authentic recovery. So I'm saying. True. Like, so I just want to make sure for listeners we got the spelling <laughs> right. In any event, welcome, Leonard, to Sunny in Seattle. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. And good morning, Sunny in Seattle. <laughs> well, thank you. It's also you. sunny in, I was going to say Philadelphia, which is where I grew up. My God, I'm. I must be nervous because I'm actually in Los Angeles. Yeah, well, you know, I lived in L.A. in West Hollywood for about four or five years, and so it has a very special place in my heart. So when I read that you, you know, your chosen home these days is Los Angeles, I very much understand why. It and has been yeah. for, for 20 years, yes. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you do a lot of uh, incredible work there that, I mean, it's what better place to be in to be having all of these film festivals and symposiums. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> After 26 years of smoking pot every day, my memory isn't what it used to be. <laughs> or my linear thinking is way off. So if the if the interview goes off in 18 different directions, you'll understand why. Well, and I... the fact that you mentioned that every episode is archived, that means... There'll be a recording of this can, that can later be used in court? Yes. Well, I don't know. You made some pretty strong confessions in writing in print, so I think... <laughs> yeah, but I don't think the FBI read, but I know they listen to <laughs> podcasts and radio shows. There's probably someone driving to their office now taping this, trying to get me... Actually, you know, my favorite year was, uh, was uh, 20 years ago when I had seven years clean and sober without drugs and without breaking the law. And I realized the statute of limitations was up. Yes. And I took a big sigh of relief. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm home free. Yeah. You know, and when I quit the business, I thought, this is like leaving a, a poker table way ahead. <laughs> yeah. It, meaning, I, I, for, cause for so many years, every time a car pulled up in front of where I lived... I thought I, I thought it was the police. You know, I had a habit of, you know, always looking out the window whenever you saw, felt a car pull up in front of your house. And it's so good to not have to live like that anymore. Now, when a car pulls up, I figure they're delivering food. <laughs> yes, which You're is a, a relief. Trust me. <laughs> yes, uh, except for all the plastic containers that you have to recycle. Oh yeah. Uh, which, that's a whole other topic. Let's not talk about global issues today okay <laughs> let's not use the filthiest word in the english language war let's talk about peace and 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 prosperity and uh yeah. traffic is back in la yeah i bet you know the, the covid <laughs> months ye- months years it was great for getting around L.A. I bet, yeah. But now pre-COVID traffic is back, and I love it because I am it. Yes. I am the traffic. When I get angry at the guy in front of me, I realize I'm the guy in front of someone else. Yep. So I, I, there's a great book by a woman whose name I just forgot called Road Sage. Mm. How I guess you can gauge your emotional well-being by how you are on the road. Oh, that's a good litmus test. That makes a lot of it's sense. It's called Road Sage. Road Sage. About 20 years old. Well, my, my, if my references are ancient, I apologize <laughs> to your younger listeners. No, I, hey, no, we have a listening audience that is very wide in age range. So 
we've got we've got you covered. Um, and I will say, Leonard, since we did not get a chance to really connect before going on air, I do want to say your book is quite the adventure, and there are a lot of wild stories and language. And we are unlike most podcasts, sadly, we are regulated by the FCC. So just like putting it out there, so that we will be careful in our language and what we share on the airwaves today, compared with a typical podcast. <laughs> uh, I will. I will refrain. From colorful language. There we go. I know. I wish we could use it. Maybe someday. But it, <laughs> Thank we're you still for, hoping. for the warning. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. It's always good. I read your book, and there were so many moments. Um, my partner would walk by, and I would just be shaking my head, and he said, who are you talking to this week? And so I would read him excerpts, and he was like, how are you going to handle that on air? <laughs> That's why she's got Benny. <laughs> exactly. Yep. That's what Benny's for. Fail safe. <laughs> Anyway, you have lived such a colorful life, and I will just say when you were talking about being uh, concerned when cars would pull up at your house, so just for our listening audience, I don't know if you want to summarize uh, you know, the, the, the high points really that you had a 27-year chosen career as a drug dealer. You did some drug smuggling. You were a user for every day for, what did you say, 44 years of marijuana? No, no, no. Not, it wasn't 44. It was oh. 26. 26. Okay. Oh, God. Yeah, of course. 26. That would make you so much older than you actually are. I apologize for that. No, um, that's okay. I would, that would make me 95. <laughs> yeah, you got sober at 44, correct? Or in your fifth? Yes. 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 Okay. Yes. Okay. There you go. Sorry. My mistake. But anyway. I didn't start using until I was 17. So I had those first 17 years very clean and sober also. Yes. So, yeah, what what would you like to, because, you know, your life, it's really these, these the two parts. The book is divided into these parts where it's, you know, the before sobriety and then now uh, your work, um, not only as a sober person, but as a drug counselor. Um, and, of course, creator of all these wonderful events and organizations to support others in their uh, road to recovery. Um, yeah, what for that first part of your life, where pre-sober, what do what do listeners need to know? Pre-sober, pre-sober, <laughs> yeah. pre-sober. Oh God, yeah, I was. I I, uh, I hate to start with the. Um, I was I was, everything was going really well, uh, until I was three weeks old when my father died. And the book got me to think about that more than I ever had in my life and realize what an actual effect his absence had on me. You know, usually you think of the people who are with you and around you are affecting you, but his absence. And I didn't realize until I was in a rehab 27 years ago that I had shame about not having a father. Mm. But I remembered being in the schoolyard and guys would start talking about their dads and what they did or what they, what, where they went on that weekend. And I remember slinking away from the group because I didn't have anything to say. I mean, one of the first multisyllabic words I learned how to spell was deceased. Because mm. every year in school you had to write down, you know, it, you know, your name and your mother and then what they did. Yeah. And when it came to my father deceased. You know, sometimes they say, well, he was a soldier in the Second World War. Obviously true. Uh, And, but when I was three weeks old, hmm, and my mother at that time, 86 to me. You know, she had another son, my older brother, three years older, and suddenly her husband died 
of a massive heart attack suddenly, and she was left with a house and a mortgage, two sons, and she, you know, was in shock. So she she stopped breastfeeding. You know, the grief and the shock was too much for her. Yeah. So like I, I said, I got 86 when I was three weeks old, and I guess every time I went into a bar when I got older and asked for a drink and they gave it to me, I thought, oh, God, yes, thank you. This was what was denied to me when I really needed it. Mm. So that somehow led to a life of, uh, no, I don't know if that led to it. I don't, the first time I smoked marijuana, I just loved it. It turned my world from black and white into color, and I just took a, a liking to it, a passion, if you will, yeah. a, 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 a love affair that I kept going for, for 26 years. Then mm. luckily was shown that uh, a life without drugs was actually more interesting and more exciting than a life with drugs. Well, so you... not to continue this without your questions and input, because I need that to, to, to keep me from speed wrapping for the rest of the morning until <laughs> late afternoon when we realize nobody has stopped to eat or go to the bathroom. Right. Yes. Well, it, you also, you know, you mentioned your mom, and I, I really enjoyed hearing the stories about her. I know, um, obviously, your father's death at three weeks old affected your relationship with her, but it sounded like she was, and I say was, I, my understanding, she passed uh, several years ago, um, uh, but that she was a very, very um, unusual mom in the sense that, so for example, I'll just read a quote here from the book. Uh, at, at a very early age, I think when you were a teenager, you came to her and you said, Ma, I know what I want to do for a living. I proudly announced the night, uh, I, uh, let's see, um, I want to be a drug dealer, you said. And her first question was, why? No tinge of judgment or condemnation or only curiosity. And it just feels like she approached you with that kind of an openness. Um, and I'm curious how that impacted um, the the trajectory of your life, her uh, willingness to really just be curious and let you go where you needed to go and do what you needed to do. She was a very savvy woman, street smart, and uh, I thought was a fantastic mother. My brother might have a different opinion because he was sent away to boarding school when he was 10, and I got to stay home and go to public schools and run or ran the neighborhood and hang out with guys all the time. Her mothering was very smart, not controlling. Probably she treated me too much like a friend also mm -hmm. uh, I think when I went to Israel and smuggled back three sacks of hashish and I came home from the airport and I throw them on the or drop put them on the kitchen table and she knew why I went to Israel she knew I went to go get hashish because I couldn't live without it when I put the hashish on the kitchen table, she said something I think only a Jewish mother could say at that moment. Are you hungry? Because <laughs> she knew I'd been traveling. Uh, and I think she only hit me once and she hurt her hand. <laughs> so there was none of that kind of behavior. 
and uh, in the, you know, and she was very, mm, she was sassy. She was smart. That's where all the curse words in my book come from because I learned them from her. Yeah, which I will not repeat on the air. Thank you. But the fact that you just read a little. Can I read a couple paragraphs? I would love that, please. From, from the preface please. that I just noticed this morning. It says, um, for 25 years I dealt drugs, got high every day, and lived under this daily specter of arrest, incarceration, and violence. I traveled the world, met brilliant, charismatic men and women, ate in fine restaurants, and had orchestra seats for plays by Tom Stoppard, Sam Shepard, and every Sondheim musical on Broadway. I avoided the cops when it counted, welcomed poets and musicians into my life regularly. Since December 12, 1950, I've been floating down the stream of life in a rowboat that could have sprung a bad leak at any moment. Too often, I was gasping for breath, damn asthma, breaking the law, worshipping nature, art, literature, and females getting high as a kite, being funny, because if you can't play an instrument, you better make people laugh, and always looking for love, sex, or the Benjamins. I spent my whole life climbing to the top of the mountain, and when I got there, I realized, oh, wrong mountain. Welcome to the world of a 5-foot, 11-inch Jewish Sagittarian dilettante's drug-addicted life. No one would ever guess this edge-of-the-cliff dance ends with the most miraculous miracle and recovery from drug and alcohol addiction i don't know if my story can help anyone i hope it i hope it i hope it can maybe there's someone reading this who only smokes pot every day because it seemed like a good idea 40 years ago no it's because you're addicted the highest you can be is when there is nothing between you and reality reality the ultimate natural high is more exciting than any drug-induced roller coaster mm. that- period Yes, that just that I'm so glad that you read that and that. So that's a little intro. Um, the book has a lot of photographs. I, um, if I hadn't become a drug dealer, I would have been a photographer because my mother worked in a photo finishing plant, so I got all my film developed for free. And her boyfriend uh, gave me a great 35 millimeter camera when I was young, and I took photographs from my high school. And, and local newspapers in Philadelphia. I would have been a photographer. So the point is, there's some really good photos in the book, which I managed to hold on to uh, for the last 40-some years that sort of illustrate the story. Not quite a graphic novel, but it is, it is, uh, there are some photographs of some very uh, important times in my life. Yes, and not to make light of the the story, but it is a very graphic novel also in other ways as well. So you've got the beautiful photos and a really fun adventure of a story. Um, Yeah. Um, I got a kick out of, I know, in addition to the photos, you had, I I couldn't believe you still had that telegram of your friends who wrote back to you that they'd been, what did they say? They got sidetracked. Um, That was their... Yes. From 1971, a telegram from 1971 that basically said, don't try to smuggle the drugs. They're actually searching people now. <laughs> yes. I, I got started back in the day before the first airplane hijacking, when even going to Israel, there was no extra security, hmm. which now we know is like, you know, they'll search everybody 10 times. Uh, but what we had found out that when we were there, 
that they were starting to search people leaving the country. And the plan was to have the woman I had uh, befriended who was flying home with uh, six pounds of hash taped to her body that we realized, oh, flying out is no longer an option. We better go to Haifa and take a ship to Marseille and get up to Paris and fly back from there. Yeah. Where there wasn't the kind of search, where they never searched anybody leaving the country. You know, customs was only searching people who came into the country. Right. Uh, But I wanted to mention, just to add some much-needed gravitas to this sunny morning Friday (laughs) conversation, was that there's a photograph in the book of me that my mother took. Um, I had an episode of a drug and alcohol-induced massive asthma attack Mm. in 1987, and I was living with a friend, and at 6 in the morning, I fell against his door. Luckily, he was still awake because we'd been up all night, and he saw that I was blue, Mm. and he called an ambulance, and I was dying. I was literally not breathing, dying, dying so that I remember the experience, and it was the least pleasant experience, maybe the most horrendous experience I've ever had uh, dying into a darkness and a blackness that couldn't, that could, can't even be imagined. Mm. And the next voice I heard was my mother's. Mm. And what had happened was the ambulance had taken me to the hospital. A couple of weeks later, the doctor said, oh, by the way, if this had been 7 in the morning, you would have died in the ambulance because there, was, there would have been too much traffic for them to get you here quick enough where we could put a respirator down your throat to breathe for you because you had stopped breathing and you were so close to leaving us. Mm. And they called my mother in Philadelphia and told her, you better get out to L.A. right now because there's a 50-50 chance you're going to fly home with your son's body. Mm. So obviously she was on the next flight. And when I came to after three days of being unconscious in the hospital, I, I thought I was blind. I, I, I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't open my eyes, so I thought I was blind. And eventually I hear a nurse's voice saying, he's come to, he's awake. And they peeled it. They had taped my eyes shut because of all the drugs and the morphine. They have to tape your eyes shut because otherwise your, eye would, your eyes would stay wide open and your eyeballs would dry out and crack. Yeah. Uh, so they had them taped shut. So they took them off. And then I heard my mother's voice. And I thought, oh, my God, maybe I did die. Uh, and there she was. And there mm-hmm. she was. And needless to say, uh, it didn't stop me from getting high. I didn't really get clean and sober for about five years after that. All I did from being in the hospital nearly dead was switch from vodka to Bombay gin sapphire because there's herbs in it. (laughs) And I thought that would be my nod to trying to live a healthier life. That's the insanity of addiction. Yeah. That alone didn't, I never even thought of quitting because my life was that. That was 
the walkway, you know, you know, at the airport when you when there's a long stretch and you're on a automatic walkway, I, you don't think of getting off, and that's my. It was. It's it's frightening to think about. It's really frightening to think about in retrospect how at the beginning you control drugs like they are the puppet and you're the puppeteer and you have your coke over here and you have your ecstasy over here, you have your marijuana here and you have your vodka here and your tequila over here and you decide what you want when you want it. But slowly without realizing it, the drugs are now controlling you. Yep. And I didn't notice it, and I lived that way for, you know, for a time, for a time. And, of course, having been a drug dealer, it was, I never ran out. I never didn't have any. I always did. I had a vial of cocaine in my, in my pocket, in that little pocket on the jeans, which I thought when I stopped doing coke, they would stop putting, making those pockets in the <laughs> jeans because I didn't need them anymore. But I had a vial of coke in there for 13 years that was never empty. Yeah. And but it was the only it was only in the 13th year that I thought I had a problem because for 12 years every time I did a line or a spoon I did it because I wanted to. Yep. But it was that 13th year that really scared me when I said, "Okay, I'm not going to do any blow today until after dinner." And then I'd be doing it after lunch. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do any today, and then I would start doing it, at, you know, at noon. Yeah, and that was frightening. I thought, oh my God, I am, I'm stuck. I'm, I can, I'm not controlling this anymore. It is controlling me, you know, and it scared me. And ironically, it was only because I learned that you could snort ecstasy that I was able to give it up. Huh. My addiction to a white powder was so phenomenally strong that I didn't I couldn't imagine living without that yes. and if there's anybody struggling with with something like what I went through uh, you know my the miracle in my life was that I, I I drove to a rehab just for some rest and relaxation I wasn't going there to quit drugs and drinking. That's not why I went. I went because I was having a nervous breakdown. But I was there for 28 days. And after like a week, I realized, oh my God, I haven't gotten high in a week. That's miraculous. And then of course, two weeks, three weeks. And after a month, I thought, this is an opportunity to completely change and save my life. It was as if I was a locomotive going onto one of those round uh, a roundhouse where a locomotive, you know, can't make a U-turn, so they go into a, into a, uh, I, I guess I should find out what these words are, uh, where the, the wheel turns and the train goes out on a different track. Yeah. That's what I felt like I had the opportunity to do hmm. because I was not high or drank drinking for a whole month. That had never happened. That was like an opportunity. That was like suddenly the clouds all cleared away and there was a blue sky and I had my choice at that moment. Do I go in my in this new direction which is fraught with with unknowingness and, and, and danger? 
because the fear of the unknown is almost worse than fear of consequences and pain. So here was the unknown. How does one live without their, what they've been so dependent on for so many years? You just have to have faith. You just have to have faith. And instead of going to the bar, you go hang with other people who also have faith, you know, who had the same illness that you had, the same addictions you had, and stopped. And you get courage, and you get, you, you lose your, you know, you know, you're still afraid, but you do it anyway. That's the great line in a movie called Three Kings with George Clooney, uh, when there's soldiers in Iraq and they're about to, you know, attack a small band of, of enemy, and the one guy says, I don't think I have the courage to do this. And George Clooney says, the courage comes afterwards. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah. the way it has to be, I think, for people who want to stop using drugs because the, the rewards aren't immediate. You know, the, the rewards are not even necessarily spoken. One of the, my greatest rewards was that four years after I quit drinking and drugging, my son went to the same rehab when he was 20 years old. He's 40 now. And he hasn't used or drank ever since. Yeah. I, you know, that. well, I wanted to ask about that as well. But that's, that's an interesting element of your story and your son's story is that for both of you, when you walked out of the Betty Ford Clinic at the end of your treatment, neither one of you went back ever again to any of the substances. And I'm just curious your thoughts as a drug counselor. Um, is is relapse a part of recovery for many people, or why was it? Why does it seem like it was? I don't want to say easy for you, but you all, both of you, didn't go back. Go back to what? Go back to hell? <laughs> hmm, I could go back to hell. I could go back to the hospital. I could go back to end up being homeless. I could go back to losing, you know, uh, uh, my my faculties. Uh, I, I, you know, I understand what you say uh, about relapse. Relapse is part of relapsing. Mm. It's not part of recovery. Mm. You know, uh, in some cases, I understand, and I'm not talking about a hardcore uh, heroin addict or, or methadone addict. I'm talking about, uh, and and, and that, that that's going to get me in trouble. Methadone user, or even a a real alcoholic. Um, the, when the craving hits, you go unconscious. You, you, you go use anyway because you can't bear the idea. But once you get 28 days, your body is pretty much clean of the substances that need to be replenished, mm-hmm. be replenished. Mm-hmm. So I don't believe relapse is part of recovery. Relapse is part of using again. And I don't like the word slip or relapse. Because the decision to quit is in your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the decision to start using again, I think that's in your head too. So it's just the decision to stop. Or maybe you never really quit in your heart and soul. Maybe you quit for other reasons. It's so complicated. It's every person you know is a snowflake. Everybody's recovery is different. Uh, the similarity is that, that you don't drink or use, huh. but you know the 
the things you have to, the, the tools that you have to use to get there are, are, are plenty and they're all available. Uh, you know, I didn't think when I got out of the rehab that I had an addiction to alcohol. It was to drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea of drinking socially still appealed to me. And then I was told or I read the line or maybe it just came to me that alcohol is a liquid drug. It's a liquefied drug. And I was a drug addict Mm -hmm. because I like to feel better than good. (laughs) If I felt bad, I wanted to feel less bad. If I felt good, I wanted to feel better. And there was always a substance that that, that could do that for you. Uh, so I see a bottle of booze as liquefied drugs, so I don't, I don't use it. Because if I took a shot right now and it gave me a little buzz, I would want to be buzzed for the rest of my life because that was the pledge I made when I was uh, younger, younger. And I thought, wow, smoking pot. Every, a lot of potheads had, all had that same vision of being 85 in the rocking chair on your front porch, smoking pot. Yeah. And that, to me, is one of the most boring goals that anyone could ever have in life because they're missing the, the sanctity, the purity, the holiness of, 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 of purity. Yeah. Of you and nothing, no filters. I used to wear rose-colored glasses all the time both figuratively and metaphysically and metaphorically. And now I don't ever wear sunglasses. I don't ever want to see things less than they are. Yeah. And you know, sometimes it hurts, but it doesn't hurt as much as being a daily drug user. Yeah, and let me ask, you, you, the subtitle of your book is Confessions of a Cannabis Addict. Now, do you feel like you were physically addicted to cannabis? Or I guess my question is, is cannabis an addictive substance in the same way that, say, alcohol or heroin is, that there's that physical element to it? Or is, well, can you speak to that? Supermarkets, I thought, oh, because I would never sign a B-Corps because I'm afraid they'd come get me. But I thought, oh, good. Now I can be a proponent of legalized marijuana because the fact that it was never a war on drugs, it was a war on immigrants, it was a war on black people, it was a war on Mexican Mexican people, it was a war on drug, it was a war on jazz musicians, it was a war on hippies. It was only meant to fill up prisons for people who own prisons. Mm. It was never there was never one positive value to the war on drugs, and everybody knows it. But so the idea of locking kids up for for a half a ounce of marijuana was barbaric. I think people will look back at these types of thinking, these people weren't civilized. Mm-mm. They locked up people their own. That's worse than like France sending people to Devil's Island. How many young people's were, you know, lives were, if not ruined, certainly you know, taken off the track to success just because they got high on marijuana and got busted? And in, in places like Texas and Nevada, it was like seven years for simple possession. Yeah. This is, you know, this is one of the great improvements in, in our society in the last 50 years, the legalizing of gay marriage, 
the legalizing of marijuana. Yeah. Uh, th- these are fabulous, you know, improvements in our society, while there have been so many <laughs> not such improvements right. in, in our society. Yeah. Uh, so marijuana is there for the asking. It just, I think it's a great neutralizer, which can be both a benefit and detriment. You know, if someone has a good day at work and they're addicted to pot, they come home and smoke pot. If someone has a really bad day at work, what do they do? They come home, they roll a joint or fill up the bong and they smoke pot. So, and there is that story in the book, I don't want to call it a scene because it really happened, where on the day of 9-11, I was living without a television. I went to a friend's house to watch the towers coming down, and she was smoking pot. She wasn't smoking pot because she was a bad person. She was smoking pot because she could not smoke pot, but she was smoking pot not to watch a disaster movie, but to see actual people die. Yeah. The, the replay of the towers coming down over and over, and she's getting high because she couldn't not get high. And I was sober at the time, and I started crying, thinking, oh, my God, I am so happy to be free of that compulsion, that addiction, that obsession, that I can sit here and just weep at the horror that I'm watching and not be getting high. Yeah. That was one of the, you know, that's like a miracle of a realization in my life that I would have been getting high to watch 9-11 also. You know, and I'm sure there's people getting high now to watch the invasion of the Ukraine. And, and it's, it's, it is what it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. Uh, well, it, and what can I, I say? There's, uh, there's almost as many marijuana stores in L.A. as there are Starbucks. Yeah. And, and I kid you not. Oh, and, we, same here in Seattle. Yeah. And, oh, in Seattle, yes. And in, 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 uh, in great places. Yeah. Yes. And, and it hasn't made more people use. I don't think anybody didn't smoke pot because it was illegal. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so this, in fact, they say sometimes it helps with opiate withdrawal, uh, that there's less overdoses in cities where strong marijuana is readily available. Yeah. Um, and, and all in all, it just keeps, it's less people are going to jail. Yeah. Um, Thank God so they can stay home and support their families or keep going to school and get an education because they're not in jail. Right. Which is a miracle. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And, of I... course, people who are still smoking 10, 20, 30 years later, hmm, I don't think they're really smoking to get high. Smoking to get high is cool. But smoking just mm-hmm. to not to feel bad. You know, you just people are smoking just because it's a habit, and they've never tried quitting because the thought is too frightening. Yeah, it's a frightening thought. Uh, giving up your your main source of of uh, you know they say it helps takes the edge off. I like the edge. That's where it's most exciting is on the edge. I had a conversation uh, through texting a couple of weeks ago with a very well known disc jockey. In Philadelphia, like a classic disc jockey back in the day when they could play whatever they wanted and they could play eight-minute songs. And 
And he said, I have a problem with the name of the title of your book, Cannabis Addiction. And he says, I've been smoking for 52 years, and I can stop whenever I want. <laughs> but why would I try? Yeah. <laughs> So that, to me, is the definition of addiction. Like, wow, you're so addicted, you don't even know it. But it's okay, because he's not getting DUIs, he's not beating his wife, he's not you know, ending up in the hospital with, with liver disease. Yeah. Uh, you know, so the consequence is very subtle. Yeah. You know, there's no hitting over the head like there are with, 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 with hard drugs and, and alcohol, which is obviously the biggest killer of them all, the alcohol, uh, especially since the pandemic, the rates of alcohol, of, of uh, declared alcoholism in women is up like 20%. Yeah. And all those millions of people who didn't have to drive to work, so their cocktail at noon could extend to five because they didn't have to drive home. Or people who'd like to smoke a joint before, you know, before or at, at lunch, you can get high all the time when you're working remotely. Yep. Unless you're on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> well, audio only, Even maybe. Even then, you can sneak <laughs> it on the side. You can have a technic, sorry, techni- we're experiencing technical difficulties. <laughs> have to take a hit off the bong and, and go. And <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it's a wild, wonderful world. I can't imagine how anybody copes with anything it's imagine it's amazing that people can get from childhood into adulthood without being really insane right you know i guess it's like what's you know what coping mechanism do you choose you know yeah. i'm envious of people who learned how to play a musician at a, a, an instrument at an early age and could woo women and entertain friends and and, and be in that hole magical world of where you don't need words you just need music uh and 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 what i'm trying to say is that it's it's like i say i'm not obsessed with death but it's all i think about Mm. and every day is a gift this ain't gonna last forever so why not make hay while the sun shines yeah. Or I don't know what the urban version of that. Why not <laughs> walk in the park while you can while you're still ambulatory? Yeah. I get amazed when I go for a walk and I'm thinking my legs are moving me along the path by me just thinking it's a, it's a good idea. Yep. You know that they're acting independently, but I'm controlling where my legs go. Mm. And it just blows my mind, not to mention how many millions and millions of chemical reactions are going on in your body right now? The gift of sight, the gift of hearing. You know, five years ago, I had a little tumor in my head, and they had to remove it. And when they did, they removed the hearing of my left ear. So I'm now like I live life in monorail, and it just makes me so much more appreciative of seeing in stereo. Yeah. Uh, you know what? But. The only hearing out of one ear is is so it's I hate it. I want stereo back because when there's a loud noise, I don't know where it's coming from. Everything, every loud noise I hear is coming from my from the right side of my my head. Yeah. Even if it's on the left side. 
so my my uh, what's the word my not my equilibrium but I don't like loud noises because I think they're all you know when it's someone behind me says excuse me and they're on a bicycle I don't know whether to move to my left or my right yeah uh, so that's a little awkward and I don't go to as many concerts as I used to because it reminds me that half of my head isn't working but luckily uh, plays and films I sort of forget that I can't hear out of one ear the doctor said that the brain would rewire itself to not be as aware of the fact that you're deaf in one ear yeah so I just hear what I hear and I have a bunch of and all my headsets are only only one ear you know I have to buy them online because they don't sell them in stores yeah. Where on the cell phone, uh, you know, I put the the ear the ear pad in, the, uh, so I get both channels. But that's besides the point. Yeah. Well, uh, food. Yeah. Good food. <laughs> Macrobiotic. Macrobiotic. Rice, vegetables, <laughs> meat. People are slaughtering animals in a torturous way, so that they can have a piece of steak. If you're having a steak right now with breakfast, really? <laughs> the eggs have enough protein. But I understand that people are, and I was eating chicken until, I don't know, last week. Uh, but I haven't had a burger in 40 years. Oh, man. Uh, an occasional piece of bacon just because I'm Jewish, and it seems like the right thing to do. Uh, and pigs led more interesting life than cows. And we know how much the methane and all that stuff. I don't know. Just yeah. you know, figure out, figure out. I'm not giving. I'm not here to give advice. Trust me. Well, uh, hopefully, and the book doesn't preach. No. It maybe teaches a little. There's some good ideas in there. I've been fortunate to have studied with some amazing people, um, you know, like Allen Ginsberg and Ram Dass and Joseph Chilton Pierce. And I even met Alan Watts once when I was young. Wow. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, if you, like I couldn't leave the house. Or if I went away on a trip, I'd have to have a novel, a nonfiction, and a book of poetry. So that whatever mood I was in, you know, that's, that was my whole crux. That I, would, I, I have a lot of needs. And maybe it's from not having had a father. I don't know. Um, you know? I think in the book it says something like, "I feel like I'm a plug with only one, 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 one prong." Yeah. One prong. So the energy I got growing up wasn't balanced. It was all from the female prong. So I never learned how to change a flat tire or paint the spare room. You know, my my instincts were given to me by a woman, which isn't terrible. Especially, you know, the, my my mother, who had a pretty wide grasp of humanity yeah, and did. people. Yeah, and she could spot a creep faster than anybody. <laughs> uh, the point is that for now, I need I need things. Yeah, I can't leave my house without a tea bags in my pocket of a tea called kukucha. It's Japanese. It's made from twigs. Very little caffeine, uh, but I can't have a meal without it. Yeah. It... And uh, 
I'll pay for hot water just to have my own tea at a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, and I The point I love... of that being that there are things in my life that I will miss when I'm gone, but I'm going to appreciate the crap out of them now while I'm still here. Absolutely. Yeah, and your book just it really does a beautiful job of, of through your personal experience in a very entertaining and engaging way, showing what worked for you and what is possible on the other side of addiction. Um, and I just, I don't want to, I know we've got to wrap up a little bit early for you, Leonard, but I want to make sure that we mention your Real Recovery Film Festival and Symposium that you started with Robert Downey Sr. And I just want to read, this is from the book, we show films that teach, not preach. The film festival is not about converting people from one lifestyle to another, nor is it propaganda or sales pitch for anything. It is exactly what it says it is, an appreciation of film and recovery. Um, and I I just was really um, interested in the films that you're showcasing. And um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about what you've got going on now. I know we've got just a couple minutes left with you. Um, but I what you are doing out in the world today for those who want to um, discover a new way of being and living um, is really wonderful. It's, it's you, know, you know, David Bowie saying it better than anybody. You know, changes. <laughs> Why not? Uh, I am on the Facebook. I love Facebook. I, I'm concerned, you know, that I'm not supporting Mark Zuckerberg with enough ads <laughs> that I put on there, but he'll understand, hopefully. Uh, so Facebook, Leonard Bouchel. Bouchel is B-U-S-C-H-E-L. Um, let's talk. Let's chat. You know, I'm I'm available as a as a <laughs> uh, as, as a drug counselor. It is my it is my calling uh, because I know I wouldn't want anybody to suffer more than they have to. Yeah. Uh, and. Um, yeah, and I think I end the book with something like Buddha said life was suffering, but then great psychologists like Albert Ellis say, no, it's your choice. Yep. There is pain, but the suffering is up to you. Yep. And how many people have said, it's not what happened to you, it's how you react to what happened to you. Exactly. And I just hope that everyone has an amazing weekend. Fabulous Friday, special Saturday, and a stupendous Sunday. <laughs> and a marvelous Monday, and a tweakerless Tuesday, <laughs> and a wild Wednesday, and a terrific Thursday. I like that. And that will bring our show to a close. Thank you, Leonard Lee Bouchel, for joining us today. The book that we talked about that has all of the Hair-raising adventures through to the beautiful road to sobriety and recovery um, is called Hi, Confessions of a Cannabis Addict. And a website where you can find out more is realrecoveryfilmfestival.org. That is realrecoveryfilmfestival.org. Thank you, Leonard, for being my guest. Thank you, Sonny. Thank you, other guy whose name I don't know. <laughs> <Benny>. <laughs> yes, and that'll we're going to end a little early today. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Sonny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sonny Joy, signing off.